Longbox Crusade presents monthly Monday movie muckabout because the podcasting world needs yet another movie review show. I am Rick, also known as Not Jeff from Jeff and Rick Presents, and I love movies. I've got this huge collection of movies, and I often get very surprised when I talk to one of my friends and find out they haven't seen one of these movies that everybody else has seen. So to rectify this, I bring them over to the Longbox Crusade attic, we sit down, and we watch the movie. And this time, and I'm very happy this time, to have one of my friends who has had me on their show multiple times. And now it's my chance to get back at them and have them on my show. So I would like to introduce you to my good friend, Jesse Cooper, host of Alphabet Flight over Innsmouth and Creepy Critters. Jesse, how you doing? I am doing fine. I barely seen the outside of my room for most of this year and probably a good chunk of next year. So I am definitely not getting so crazy. No, no, no. I, I, I can understand that as well. I have more or less moved into this room. I mean, I, I haven't, I do have a nice size house so I can get out and get out in it. I go outside with my daughter and, you know, have her ride her bike up and down the street. But yeah, most of my life nowadays is in this room with work and then doing recordings for my podcast shows. But I, I at least get a little bit of interaction with people like you just from seeing you on the little screen there. Hi. Hi, Jesse. How you doing? <laughs> hi. Hi. I'm I'm on a little screen. That's where my friends live, on little screens. You, you've got three little shows that you do, and you got a cat that wanders around your room, and you're stuck in your room. But besides that... As soon as you bitched it, just like, went, <laughs> look at me. Look at me. You, you were bored. Now you're not bored. <laughs> well, yep. I would like to give you something else to distract you from your normal life i would like to give you a movie to watch are you interested to see what movie i'm going to give you yes i am all right well i would like you to watch from 1981 sam raimi's the evil dead Ooh. and if if this doesn't look like any cover you've seen before it's because it's not i actually have the cryptonomicon cover of the movie i've got the the book with the evil dead and once you watch the movie you'll get an understanding about what this is but i had to get this you know this fake book cover thing yeah so like the evil dead is one of those series where i've watched every single thing except for the first movie oh okay so this is going to be interesting i it's it's not going to be a really a question of what do you know about the movie? Because you kind of know the movie, but why have you skipped the first one and gone straight to the second? I have a thing mm -hmm. where I tend to either pick up on the worst version or the worst time to pick up on something. And for whatever reason, just never went back. Like Evil Dead, I remember Evil Dead too. I'm just like, well, that thing on the cover looks like Thing from Adam's Family. So of course I wanted to watch as a kid. And then, like, you know, Ash versus Evil, uh, Ash versus Evil Dead. You know, cool. That's cool. And then I watched the show that was on Stars. That was cool. I had, like, two Hispanic characters that I can glom onto, which was great. <laughs> like, also, also, like, Bruce Campbell's, like, real good. And I even watched, I even watched the remake mm -hmm. that they did, which had that scene that still seared into my mind where the guy's taking the needle out of his eye. <laughs> like, you know, I watched everything but the first movie. Well, it, this is going to be a little different than, than a lot of other people. I mean, well, I have had a few people on who have heard almost everything about the movie. You have seen Evil Dead, too. You have seen a lot of what this movie is. But there is some pretty good stylistic differences between the first movie and this movie. So it will be very interesting to see your take on it. I think we'll still have a good time doing it. But 
this will be kind of fun. This, of course, is Bruce Campbell. He's in this one. He's in all of them. He's the he's the constant. Ellen Sandwies, Richard Domenicor, Betsy Baker, and Teresa Tilly. That's who's gonna who you're gonna see in this film. You ready to watch it? Yeah. All right. I am gonna go ahead and let you sit down and watch this movie. I am gonna give all of our listeners an opportunity to hear the trailer from 1981's Evil Dead, and then we'll come back and have a little chat about the first movie in this series. And before we start with the trailer, I would like to warn anybody out there that this is probably the grossest sounding one that we have listened to yet. So, viewer discussion is advised. No found language, just very meaty. I have seen the dark shadows moving in the woods, and I have no doubt that whatever I have resurrected through this book is sure to come calling for me. Your girlfriend, you take care of her. of you that really really wanted to sit down and watch this movie sat down and watched it because we're gonna spoil it for you but before we do that i'm gonna spoil it for you by reading a short synopsis of the film five friends are headed up to a cabin for a vacation but they have taken the cheap route and you get what you pay for the creepy cabin is located deep in the woods over a creaky and unreliable bridge and past some very creepy people as the friends start to settle in they stumble upon the prior owner's belongings, including a reel-to-reel tape machine and a book of pure evil that is made from human flesh and written with human blood. Playing the tape awakens the evil spirits and demons of the woods, and the friends quickly start to be possessed. Finally, it is Ash versus his evil friends as they turn on him. So Jesse, what do you think about the first Evil Dead movie? So, I liked it. (laughs) Um, it was uh, so me as a person. Yeah, I I like spooky things. Mm-hmm. I like reading spooky things. I uh-huh. like I like like listening to spooky things. I always forget that watching horror movies messes me up real hard. <laughs> I forget it every single time. And let me tell you, this was real spooky. Like yes. they did. 
because I'm mostly familiar with the later stuff Mm -hmm. where they take a more comedic turn to it, where they do more of a horror comedy thing. This one was just straight horror and it was like chef kiss, like scary, like real scary. And I, I'm a big fan. Good, good. So like you said, you've seen the later ones. You kind of have, I mean, the difference between the first movie and the second movie is academic. I mean, there's definitely differences, but it's the same plot. Yeah. So you kind of know what you're getting. Did it meet your expectations, though? See, I was thinking it was going to be a little bit more on the comedy side. Because like, mm-hmm. like, I'm familiar with The Evil Dead 2, Asher's The Evil Dead. and But that show, and it's all like very funny. And like, I mean, you know, they do good horror and stuff in it. But this one is just like pure, like masterful, like 70s. I mean, am I thinking the wrong decade? Yeah. It's it's seven late seventies early eighties types uh, yeah well I'm gonna say seventies style horror like yeah. you could tell that it was shot on a, a like a pretty low budget but the effects of it and the atmosphere is just so good like it just sucked me in mm-hmm. like it was hard to it was hard to look away even when I was gonna be even when I was watching someone being stabbed or <laughs> violated and I'm just like oh my god I can't. Uh. <laughs> like you know it filled me with a lot of dread which i think is i prefer i think i prefer when horror fills me with dread like a mm-hmm. building dread than um just scares me yeah and this this does a really good job at just building dread up it, like it's stuck that's a little bit of the difference between the types of horror you have the psychological you've got the slasher you've got the the jump scares. I mean, there's different types of horror movies that you've got. You've also got the thrillers, which build up the thrill, but you know, don't get you to that. I'm really scared at night kind of a thing. This is a little bit of the psychological, a little bit of the slasher. It toes the line between those two, I think. Yeah. And it makes a lot of sense why Sam Raimi became a big deal (laughs) because, because yeah, like they offer this movie alone. Like I can see some just masterful, masterful just shooting and building like i mean i you also have to credit like you know the dp and all that stuff oh yeah that that was pretty much him and everybody was was, i I mean there there was not that much difference between the cast and the crew in this film that was pretty much all that he had to work with (laughs) yeah but it's it's just done really well and uh sometimes low budget horror feels a little bit more scary because you could feel like it's unpolished a, a little bit but the unpolished makes it feel like is this supposed to be there is this like it makes off kilter a little bit that's really what we're talking about though because we've got a film that was made 1981 around that time that's when it was released and it had a budget at that time of 350 to 400 thousand dollars that is it i mean they lucked out on the location they lived there while they were shooting and apparently the conditions were horrible they drove up in the car that you see in the beginning of the film that's how they got up there that was one of the two or three vehicles they drove up there i mean they made this on a shoestring budget and so you start watching this film and taking aside the horror aspect completely and 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 kind of the the, the plot of the movie if you look just at the cinematography alone and kind of the direction he's doing with the cinematography you have to sit there and continue to applaud it i mean what did you think about it the cinematography was really well done the thing that i like about it is so it doesn't necessarily hold your hand it feels i don't know if trust is the right word but it but it allows you to assume things like it doesn't really it's hard for me to say exactly like it doesn't it doesn't exactly hold your hand it doesn't have like these like really weird like 
you know, like one minute scenes where someone is explaining everything that's happening right. at the time. No. Which sometimes you need that for certain movies. Like, I'm not going to uh, lie. Like, sometimes, sometimes the plot is just dense and you need someone to say, hey, here's what's happening. But this is just the way that it starts to where it ends. Like, it feels like you're just in the middle of a movie in the first place. Mm-hmm. And it just lets you go. It's fun. It's fun that it does that for you because it puts you in a, like a weird situation where you don't know what's going on, really. And then you just continue to not really know what exactly is going on until like middle of the movie, really. And, and even then, you might know what's going on, but it doesn't necessarily matter because that's that's part of what horror does in the first place. Horror is something that you can build up with visual and audio clues. A little bit of dialogue can get you a long way in a well-done horror movie because the less you as the audience know, the more in suspense you're put and the more you you're just like the rest of the cast. You don't know what's going on. It's just, this is creepy and I don't know what's happening and it's scaring me. That's where you want the audience at. That's where you want your cast at. You also need that in this low budget film because, okay, let's be honest. The uh, acting in this is fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll I'll say, I will say that uh, it's nice seeing a, a young uh, Bruce Campbell. Oh yeah. Because yeah. I'm used to watching it mostly in Burn Notice. Uh, which I will fight anyone who says that's a bad show. I love it. Um, I, I am on your side, my friend. I am on your side. Watched every single episode of that. Loved it, it. Like, I'm a sucker for just, like, a very competent person describing how to do something, which is also why I liked White Collar. Uh, but, but like, it's nice seeing, like, a like a young, like, classically handsome, like, Bruce Campbell just, uh-huh. like, act well enough. And, well like, enough. Well enough and just be, like... Like a scared person. Like, it's just, he was, he act properly scared. And I think it's fair to say he is probably the best actor in this film. And that's the bar we're going with. <laughs> oh, let me tell you, the blonde dude. Oh, like, I was kind of happy. I'm going to be honest. I was kind of happy when he just got got. I'm just going to be honest. <laughs> that dude was so annoying. Yeah. Motivation, acting, dialogue, lines. That is not this film's strong suit. No, sorry, Bob. I think, like I said, going back to the beginning, the, I think one of the highs, and tell me if I'm wrong, is just the cinematography and how it puts you in that space. Yes, like, just the cinematography does a really good job with the atmosphere. Like, even the way it's shot, like, you could tell the relationships between all the people, because they didn't just, like, go out and straight up say, hey, this is, this is, I forgot everyone's name. This is Bruce Campbell's girlfriend, and yeah. there's, there, here's his sister and all that stuff. Like, they did a really good job at showing just with the cinematography and somewhat with the acting, with, uh, like, all their relationships and, like, how they interact as a group. And everything, mm-hmm. even though that all goes to hell literally in like 30 minutes. Uh, <laughs> if that, I think the sister, Cheryl, she's there just a little while before she gets possessed and starts to draw in her book and she draws the cover of the Necronomicon and okay, yeah. we're into the film. Oh, uh, if you don't mind me having like a very brief aside, because sure. uh, I, cause I do, I'm uh, sorry for the early plug, but I do a podcast where I look into HP Lovecraft stories, yeah. like somewhat chronologically and also released an audiobook which I was described as spooky ASMR, I'm just saying. But we kind of been reading a lot of H.P. Lovecraft's books, uh, being stories, which mm-hmm. I feel like people need to look into because they probably know like two or three. Yeah. And I'm a big, big Lovecraft fan myself. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to deny some of his stuff was like horribly xenophobic, but I've read over, over four, 40 stories so far. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, only like five of them even like approached anything about race. <laughs> so, you know, but that being said, I'm not going to apologize for anything. But that being said, this movie does the equivalent of like a middling like Lovecraft story. Yeah. Where it does a really good job at describing the atmosphere and just kind of building things and building things and building things. And then all of a sudden that burst of like horror all of a sudden where like it it's a good like uh, tensioning up and then release. Mm hmm. You know, it's it helps that they don't do any exposition for that because I'm just like, okay, so I know what to expect now. No, 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 it's just it's it's just gonna you're just randomly gonna get this demon demon woman. Well, I think one of my favorite things about Lovecraft, and I think that Lovecraft does it well, and this film almost does it well enough, is the horror is it's un- indescribable. It's so terrifying that you can't describe it. It's in your mind. And it's, you know, to really try to think about it too much makes you go mad. And so having that kind of tension of Lovecraft, you know, style of horror is different from what I always kind of got from somebody like Clive Cussler, where it's like he describes everything out. And it's like, okay, I can visualize what you're describing. That sounds pretty bad, but. You know, you aren't leaving it up to me to think of something that terrifies me, you know, which is which is what you're kind of doing. Having the beginning parts of this film be all of the the setup, the sound, the eerie noises, the low camera shots that are snaking through the forest and just the the quick looks to the side and and the little creepy things happening. You don't know what's going on. There's no explanation for it. And that's that makes you think of something worse than anything they almost could show you. Yeah. And like, if I was to compare this to a story, I would probably say like something like the picture in the house or the nameless city, mm-hmm. something like that, where both of those do a really good job at ratcheting up dread. And like, yeah. it's, you're just, you're just existing. And then a bunch of bad stuff happens all of a sudden. <laughs> and it happens real quick. And then like, it's over and you think you're okay at the end, but maybe you're not. Yeah. So you have just enough time to breathe and then something else bad happens. Yeah. What are some things that really took you out of this film? Was there some things that you really didn't like? Okay. So a thing that I've heard discourse about in the past, okay. <laughs> which I will put it lightly, the uh, violation of the first person uh, yes. who gets, uh, I feel like that's, let's say for a movie that has avoided almost any type of that type of violation mm-hmm. um, for the rest of it felt like you could have done something different. It didn't have to focus on it for five minutes. Yeah. It felt not, not to be that person. It felt very uh, male gazy in a way that was supposed to be more titillating than horrifying. Yeah. It, and I, I get you on that. And I think that this not to excuse the film, but to always place a film in the time period that it was filmed. Yeah. This was in the early 1980s. And that was, you almost couldn't make a film. The the the, uh, the film board would actually, you know, come into break into your house and burn your film if you did not have a scene like that in a horror movie. I I think that was kind of one of those things that you had to have. Well, not to say that that's right or wrong. In today's society, it's like okay, we we get it. We don't need to go there. We don't need this kind of a scene. You can do something else. You don't need this scene. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, also to be fair, like if you look at other movies from the seventies and eighties, there's mm-hmm. a lot of um, I don't know problematic treatment towards women for jokes, like in comedies. Uh, like the Goonies had something about like gaslighting someone into you know coercing them into into like kissing someone random that they yeah. didn't want to kiss. You know, like even that had something like I could 
think of like it's played as a joke most of the time. I think horror movies it was almost like mandatory. It's just you know I don't feel like it's needed. No, uh, no, I, I I would agree with that. I would definitely agree like, with that. Like even if they had it, they could have not had it happen for like five minutes. It was the slowest feeling part of the movie. Yes, I agree. That it, it's interesting to go back and look at older movies of any type and see things that were played for laughs, were played for something as being commonplace but then you look at them now it's like "Mm, this doesn't quite work anymore and we are going to run into that always with older movies just because of the time that they were filled filmed the acceptable norms of the time and once again it's like we not excusing it it still was wrong it's just that at the time it was okay yeah um yeah that's that's the main thing that's the only thing that kind of brought me out of it it's just it just like towards the end of the scene, it just was like it felt like it felt like it was just there, so you could just like lustfully look at someone <laughs> for a little bit, you know. That being said, like after that's over, it the movie goes madcap, yeah. <laughs> like madcap speed. Like it's like a good forty minutes of just like nonstop, just like someone trying to stab someone else. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's talk about some of these other characters. I mean. We, I guess depending on how we talk about him, this could be seen as good or bad. We talked a little bit about Bruce Campbell's character, but let's talk about him. Ash Williams. Uh, We know more about Ash Williams after this film, but if we stay just in this film, what do we know about this guy? I feel like he is the, like the good dude, the good dude who happened to be the best friend with like one of the worst people. Uh, (laughs) Like he seems like a good friend. He seems like he's a good uh, boyfriend or, Boyfriend and brother. Boyfriend and brother. Like, he seems like just a really, like, chill person (laughs) for the most part. Because, like, I feel like we get, like, with his characterization, he seems very thoughtful. He seems to, like, he wants wants to be funny. He wants to be likable. And I do, even though we only get, like, 20, maybe 30 minutes of him being able to not be attacked by people possessed, I felt really connected to him. He was just real good. And, like, later on, like, if we go afterwards, I love I love Ash. Like after <laughs> after this, like Ash is so good. Uh, but but like in this movie, in this movie, it's just he's a pretty good dude. I, I am not sure exactly how much connective tissue there is with the later incarnations of Ash and this Ash. I think this might be a relative, not the direct person. <laughs> well, I will, okay. Well, I will. Well, maybe, maybe. Just as as a person who has watched everything else, pretty yeah. much, maybe maybe this experience just broke him. You know, I feel like, <laughs> like you know sometimes people have a little bit of break. The brain chemistry literally changes, and they become a slightly different person. Mm-hmm. I can see that. We we get a little bit of he's the intelligent one of the group. He's the one who wants to try to decipher this mystery. He also is the one that starts to make good choices, and then questions his good choices and does the opposite but you know he's got a lot of chances where he he goes starts to go down the right path and then he gets persuaded to not do the thing and it just gets worse for him but he he's probably the more more intelligent one of the group well also he's the he seems to be the most emotionally intelligent person as well because we get this uh, scene where i do not know the guy's name i just know i don't like him the blonde dude <laughs> that would be scott Played Scott. by that's, Richard oh DeManicor. That's a scumbag name. So yeah, Scott. Yeah, so Scott was like... <laughs> I apologize to all the Scots out there who listen. <laughs> well, as a person who doesn't like Scott Summers... Uh, well, currently, hey, currently. hey now, hey now. <laughs> Don't talk about my boy Slim. Okay, no, I, I, I like him now. 
but that's just because he's a dad. But whatever. I'm not going to get into that whole thing. I have a whole rant about Cyclops. Uh, but but he basically just kind of a... He's not good. He's not a good person. Kind of a D-bag the entire time. He's like a JV jock. I mean, he, he thinks he's all that, but he's not really all that. I, it yeah. kind of starts right away when they're driving in the car, too. Like, well, yeah, because we have that, like, very, like... I think within the first five minutes where they have the bridge, it's just like, hey, yeah, we could get over this bridge just fine. And the bridge, obviously, you cannot get over it in the car. They get over it, but it falls apart under their tires. You know, if they were off like a little bit, they would have went into the river, basically. And and like, you know, he's just playing it off. And then another time, like when they're playing the the real thing, like. I forget if it's a, a Ash's sister or not. Is it Ash's sister? Uh, Cheryl, yes. Cheryl, yeah, Cheryl. She asks, like, hey, can you stop playing? This is kind of real spooky. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he keeps on playing it. Right. And if it turns out if he didn't, they would be fine. Which, <laughs> uh, but, like, you know, like, Scott is just not a good person, but Ash seems to be the person who always goes behind and be like, I'm sorry. He's, he's like yeah. that. Like, you have to know him. Like yeah, he's he's a friend that's that's making excuses for his friend. Yeah, like like you know it's okay to have the d bag friend, but you know don't subject him to other people, baby. Oh. <laughs> well, we've mentioned her a few times. Let's talk a little bit about Cheryl, the sister. Yes. Yeah, so I'm wondering. So Cheryl seems to be a very nervous type. First yeah. off, um, I'm wondering if they were. I'm wondering if this is on purpose or not. But she seems to be the. She seems to be art, the artsy person. Like yeah. she wants to kind of be alone after a little bit, and she draws like the cover of the Necronomicon. Like after she gets possessed or something by after the tape plays, yeah, awakening the demon, the Evil Dead. I guess Evil Dead is the right word. Yeah, uh, the Evil Dead. They and I'm wondering if they're using her nervousness as like, well, obviously she's the weakest out of the like mentally out of all of them or not. She's the most artsy. She's the most in touch with her feelings. She can be easily taken over because of that. Yeah. Like I'm wondering if they're going for that angle or not, or if it was just like, well, we probably don't want to make the like girlfriend first be possessed first. Cause then you have to, cause then you won't have the dramatic tension later. Yeah, It seems like everybody else that gets possessed with the exception of Ash is because they get injured or killed or, or cut. It's they get some kind of injury and they get infected. Whereas she just gets it's it's like it gets into her mind easier because she is more artsy. Yeah, like yeah. I, I don't I don't know if they're trying to make, trying to make commentary. If I'm like my my former almost film student is coming out on something like that, but you know I feel it. I feel like also she's uh, she's also the first one to run out and get. Yeah, and all that stuff. Well, uh, once again, like any good horror movie, there are people that make bad, bad choices, and that's what you want to do. Is you want to make sure that you, if you hear a creepy noise, you don't go get your friends and say, "Hey, guys, I heard a creepy noise. I'd like you to go out with me because this is terrifying." No, in a good horror movie, you say, "Hmm, that sounds like a creepy noise. I'm going to go investigate by myself in the dark because I make good choices." Yeah, which leads to the scene that was my low. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but I don't know if they're trying to make any commentary on that or if they just wanted the dramatic tension of Ash's girlfriend, who I forgot the name of as well. Uh, His girlfriend was Linda. Linda. Played by Uh, Betsy Baker. Because she was the second to last to be... Yeah, it kind of ended up with Ash, Linda, and Scott. 
Oh, no, you didn't. You had Cheryl that was underneath the floorboards, too. But yeah. 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 So because like that part, I think, was like riveting, honestly, like his his like, I know what's going on here, but my emotions. Also, he was going to propose to her. Propose or give her this pretty gift. It was it didn't it wasn't a ring, but he was gonna give her this pretty gift. It kind of looked a little bit like a proposal or like, hey, can we go steady for a long time now? Something like that. Yeah, well it's you know, something tantamount to saying like, yo, you're my forever girl type yeah, thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um so I feel but i like that part was like riveting. Like I think the the woman who played Linda did so good. Yeah, in that she did part. good. That leaves us just with Shelly, played by Teresa Tilly. And she was the girlfriend for Scott, and she wasn't there. Well, she she got out of there pretty quick. Uh, she she was uh, shown the error of her ways by being infected, and then being uh, well. They let's see her. They they tried to bury her, and then they decapitated her, and then successfully buried her. So she yeah. uh, she had some moments. <laughs> I mean, she did get some good swipes in on Scott, which oh, yeah. she obviously deserved. Um, <laughs> <but>. <laughs> Once again, it's it's a very interesting cast. We have these five people. We have the disembodied voice of the professor who's telling us what's going on when they're playing the tape. And then we have two people at the beginning, which are, is, I think, Sam Raimi. They're, they're the fishermen that they kind of wave to. One of yeah. them is Sam Raimi, the director. And I think the other one is his brother, who's one of the shemps on this film. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It's not. It's... um. Robert Tabert. He was the other local fisherman. But yeah, okay. Sam Raimi was <laughs> right here in front of me. But Sam Raimi was a, one of the fishermen that waved at them. There is one other cast member that we should mention in this. And it's not really a person, but it's the car. Did you notice the car? Like something ring a bell? I don't mm-hmm. know. I don't know off the top of my head, though. That car is known as the classic. And if you follow any of Sam Raimi's career, and I, I've got a couple of Bruce Campbell's books, and, and Bruce Campbell writes about this car in detail go and look at the first spider-man movie that sam raimi did the car uncle ben is driving should look kind of familiar look at any of the evil dead movies the ash versus the evil dead uh, army of darkness look at those movies you will see the classic i think even in dark man it appears in dark man no oh no it's it's used in like it's used almost in every episode of the of the series as well yeah it's yeah, and uh, they also get the shotgun. They also get the shotgun uh, as well. The single shot shotgun, which mm-hmm. is surprisingly clutch. Like, uh, like <laughs> it's literally, like, literally Chekhov's gun that I forgot about. Yeah. <laughs> like. No, that, that, that car, there's, there's interesting stories that are written about that car. I, I can't remember the entire details, but there was one movie that they were on. And Sam, and of course, Bruce Campbell was there as, as an extra and they had to do a shot with this car and they're going, oh, you know, we need to do a shot from the inside. We need to, we need to cut into this car. Is that going to be okay? And Bruce Campbell's like, yeah, it's fine. And when, <laughs> when Sam Raimi came up and said, and saw his beloved car cut in half, he almost killed Bruce Campbell. <laughs> it's like, you are going to pay to get that repaired. <laughs> Man. This film is also interesting, too, because apparently in, during the editing process, Sam Raimi ran into or, or was using an editing studio where one of the Coen brothers was working. And this is how the relationship between the Coen brothers and Sam Raimi started as well. So there's a lot of things that came out of this film. I think one of the greatest things about this or the greatest story you can say about this is if you've got an idea, if you've got a passion, do it. Work yourself into the bone to get it done. You see it with this movie. You see it with something like Clerks that Kevin Smith did. Do do what you want to do. 
do it as well as you can, go and sell it, and all of a sudden you've got the keys to the kingdom. Oh, it's even it's even easier now because like you can if you can convince a streaming platform like Amazon who will accept anything, mm-hmm. like you can get you can get yourself as stuff in front of people. So yeah, it's no, but this yeah this movie is like is real good, and I'm. <laughs> And I'm glad I actually watched it. It's weird that I watched everything else involved with it. I had a good idea. Like, even watch the remake that they did. <laughs> that that seed, like, the seed where they had to pull the needle out of the eye thing. Oh, my God. <laughs> it haunts me to this day. <laughs> well, I, I think that's a good segue into how do you want to rate this film? Remember, on our show, we rate it full bags of popcorn. No halvesies. One through five. One being the worst, five being the best. How many full bags of popcorn would you give this film, Jesse? I think I would give it four. Okay. The only reason why is as much as I liked a lot of the practical effects, some of them got a little distracting. Yeah. Uh, I will admit that anytime they did a close, I'm just like, ooh, that looks way better when you're doing a wide shot. Of, uh, <laughs> 4K it, does not look good. <laughs> no. Uh, and... Yeah, this is one of those movies you have to watch in standard def, like, yeah. yeah. But four, yeah, because there's, there's, you know, there's that one scene that was mm-hmm. a little, lingered a little bit too hard um, on, you know, the practical effects got a little distracting. Like, when they didn't work well, it was distracting. I think I ended up on a three on this one myself. I, I love this film. I think this film is phenomenal for what it does. I think that it does suffer a little bit from not having the best cast in the world. <laughs> I mean, you can really feel it. There, there's, a, there's a fine line between bad acting and being natural, and this is bad acting. And I, I think that, I think it's just got some rough edges that you see Sam Raimi as a director and as a writer really start to shave off as he becomes more polished himself. And I think that it, it does show in this early film. But man, the cinematography and the simplicity of the storyline it's all good, and so it really makes up those deficits. And that's why I'm, I'm I'm a solid three on this one. I think this is really good film. I think it's something that people should should see. This is a fun film. This is a fun film. I found myself enjoying it more than I remembered I would. As we leave, I would like to give you an opportunity to tell the fine folks in the podcasting sphere where they can find your wonderful work. Okay, so as a person who uh, uses podcasts to cope with the world around them, I have three. <laughs> Uh, so first one i almost got into a rant style of that a style of rant that i would get on on that podcast with is alphabet flight where i and a guest talk about uh marvel characters thrice weekly yeah we kind of go through the official handbook of marvel universe we talk about them alphabetically also i named it after alpha flight and every time i talk about alpha flight i think i like it the less so but regretting that uh, <laughs> uh but uh but yeah so that one's fun it has over 600 episodes closer to 700 so there's tons of backlog and tons of obscure characters some of them are hopping up and even like last month You'll get the whole backstory. I also have uh, Over in Smith, which I talked about earlier, where we, uh, where me and my friend Faith, we read and talk somewhat bodily about H.P. Lovecraft's story in somewhat chronological order. We also release a audiobook of all the ones that don't suck or aren't racist. Um, <laughs> so far, I've only had to not do three out of 40. And then I have... Into Riverdale, where which it was rebranded recently, and I'm sorry, Daniel, I don't remember what you rebranded it to, but it's me and my friend Daniel. We talk about uh, Riverdale episode by episode, the first season of 
of it was Into the Badlands, which is why it's called Into Riverdale. And uh, yeah, if you want to somehow be as confused as we are when we're watching the show and are recapping it, you can listen to that. It's pretty fun. I have been a guest on their show, Alphabet Flight, multiple, multiple times, and I cannot say enough good things about it. And Jesse is a very, very fine person as well. As for myself, you can find me on Twitter at mmuckabout or on my other podcast, Unpacking the Power of Power Pack, which I host with Jeff, my co-host, who, contrary to popular belief, is not a disembodied voice on a reel-to-reel player. If you would like to be on this show, please feel free to contact me. You can reach me at Jeff and Rick Present, all one word at gmail.com. Big thank you to the Longbox Crusade Network for letting me use this beautiful attic of their headquarters to broadcast their show. I promise I am not hiding any more books bound in human flesh to your knowledge. I would also like to thank their sponsor, Omaha Bound, who is currently still on their one-year hiatus from binding. But if you have any wonderful text that you would like to bind in materials that are not human flesh, please contact them. They do a fantastic job, and I highly, highly support their work. Also, I would like to thank the Longbox Crusade members who help support this network. If you would like to support this network, please head on over to Patreon and search for Longbox Crusade. That's all the time we have for you today, but please come back next week, grab the popcorn, and pull up a seat for our next episode. The music for this episode is Fall Back by musical genius Joe November. Check out his SoundCloud at josephlin99. That's J-O-S-E-F-L-I-N-9-9.